The text for this afternoon's sermon, the Word of God, as we summarize and confess it in Lord's Day 41 of the Heidelberg Catechism, that is on page 556 of your book of praise. And here the church confesses and summarizes the teaching of Holy Scripture about the, the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, in the following manner. What does the seventh commandment teach us? That all unchastity is cursed by God, we must therefore detest it from the heart and live chaste and disciplined lives both within and outside of holy marriage. As God in this commandment forbid nothing more than adultery and similar shameful sins, since we body and soul are temples of the Holy Spirit, it is God's will that we keep ourselves pure and holy. Therefore, he forbids all unchaste acts, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever may entice us to unchastity. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I think it was about two years ago, a chief minister of the state of Punjab in India took a glass, put it down into a holy river, and drank a glass of water from that river. They had been trying to clean that holy river, which had been polluted, and he was trying to show people that it was safe to drink. Two days later, he was in hospital with bad stomach problems which goes to prove that you can call something holy, but it doesn't mean to say it's necessarily good for you. Now, Scripture uses the illustration of clean water, pure water, to describe the intimate, faithful covenant love between a husband and a wife. Pure sexual love is described in Proverbs 5, verse 15, in the following manner, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well, should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. And so it is in line with Scripture to see sexual purity, chastity, like cool, clean, pure, refreshing water. When you drink water, you don't want it to be filled with garbage and with dirt and sexual intimacy in the wrong place outside of the holy state of marriage is like taking a glass of water that some random strangers have backwashed in and glass of water was just full of dirt and, and garbage and excrement. And you know what's going to happen if you drink water like that. You're going to be sick. You're going to have pain. It's going to hurt. It's going to be bad for you. And so the commandment, the seventh commandment is is a commandment of love, as they all are, where the Lord instructs us, keep it clean. Keep it pure. Sexual intimacy of any type that does not align with the purpose and character of the holy state of marriage hurts us. It brings pain and brokenness and death, as all sin does. And God loves us. He doesn't want us to be hurt. He doesn't want us to hurt ourselves and hurt each other. You remember from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, that it's not just the physical act of adultery which is in view when the Lord prohibits adultery. It's everything that surrounds it, everything that leads up to it, as the Catechism confessed. We just read it. It's that whole constellation of thoughts and lusts and looks and actions which surround and lead towards the physical act. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4 puts it this way, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now, why, 
Why does God command us this? And why does God judge the sexually immoral and adulterous? Because he loves us. Because he has set us free from sin. Because he doesn't want us to hurt ourselves or hurt others. Because sexuality, the way God created it to be, is a powerful force. It is beautiful. It is honorable. It is life-giving. But when it is twisted, when it is perverted by sin, it is ugly. It is shameful, and it brings death. Now, we read Ephesians chapter 5, and if you have your Bible still open, you, we'll just look at a few verses here. You, you see the contrast that the apostle draws between the darkness and the light, between the day and the night. Look there in verse 1. We're instructed to be imitators of God, to reflect his character, which means that we walk in love. And walking in love doesn't align with walking in lust. Look at verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. There are things that don't belong to the children of God, don't belong to those who are of the day, don't belong to those who are in the kingdom of light. There are things that belong to the darkness. And those who embrace those things that belong to the darkness, those that dabble in them, those that live in them, the scripture says they have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. See that in verse 5? You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. There's no room in the kingdom of the holy for that which loves the unholy. And so Paul says in verse 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. Which are out of place. They're not fitting. Why aren't they fitting? Well, we confess that, right? We, we read that summary of Scripture's teaching in question answer 109. We're body and soul, we're temples of the Holy Spirit. So what is God's will? What is God's will? Our sanctification, that we keep ourselves pure and holy. That's why he forbids all unchaste acts, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever may entice us to unchastity. Because as temples of the Holy Spirit, when we engage in sexual sin, it's like going to the temple and smearing it with filth. There's an act of hatred, not an act of worship for God. And so we're called to say no to all of those things. Instead, says the apostle, and this is, this is rather striking, instead, look at verse 4, the end there, let there be thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. He, he's, he says, no filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. And you would expect him to say, well, be clean and, and speak good things, but he doesn't say that right here. He says, let there be thanksgiving. And that teaches us something about the character of sexual sin and all sin. The driving force behind sexual sin is the opposite of thanksgiving. It is ingratitude. It is discontent. It is covetousness. It is wanting something or someone which is not ours to have. Like all sin, sexual sin too takes what is good, what is created for God's glory and our joy and twists it by wanting to use it in a way 
in a context and for a purpose that doesn't fit with its created character. We're not satisfied with what God has provided. We're not thankful for what God has created. We will choose our own way. And that's the original sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. And we repeat the original sin in a certain way every time we choose to sin. And so the opposite of lust and covetousness is love and thankfulness. And so that's what the apostle encourages and incites the believers to give themselves over to rather than a life of the sins of the flesh and the passions of the flesh and the impurity of sexual sin. Look at verse 20 and following. He says, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father. Now, what does a life of thankfully living in the light and in the love of God look like? Well, he ends the chapter by describing marriage. Mutual submission as the wife submits to her own husband and the husband loves his wife and gives himself up for her. That's not just, it's not as though Paul said, well, I'm finished talking about sexual sin and now I'm just gonna switch and talk about something totally different here. No, there's a reason the wife's and the husband's bit is there at the end of this chapter because it's connected. That's living in thankfulness. It is putting sexual intimacy in the right place, the place that God created to be, which is in holy matrimony. And that's living in thankfulness. That's living in holiness. Now, Paul goes back to creation. You see that there in verse 31? He goes back to creation. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's, he's quoting Genesis chapter 2. And then he continues and says, look, this is the way God made things to be. This is where sexuality and intimacy belongs. This is where it's good and holy and life-giving. And this is such a big thing. This is such a holy thing, such a cosmically significant thing that Paul continues to say, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, when we read those words, we say, okay, we're scanning through this chapter. Don't live in sexual sin. Live in thankfulness. Thankfulness is living in line with God's revealed will and God's created ordinances. And that means when it comes to sexual intimacy, living that in marriage. It was established in Genesis 2. Man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And the word hold fast or cleave is, is a word which means something like be glued together with uh, the most powerful glue you can imagine. It's to become basically fused together inseparably. But, but when he says this mystery is profound, I'm saying that it refers to Christ and his church. We often think that, well, that means that the husband, as he, as he explains, the husband loves the wife as Christ loves the church and the church loves Christ uh, the, uh, as the church loves Christ, so the, 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 the wife loves her husband. And that's true. That's uh, certainly reflected in marriage. But there's more here than just that. And I want to dig into that a little bit in the time that remains in this sermon. Because the command to be holy and pure and faithful without sexuality has to do with Christ and the church. 
It has to do with the great cosmic plan of God for the eternal, perfect, joyful union of Christ and the church. It's not just that Christ and the church, their love and their mutual commitment is reflected in marriage, but marriage is a part of God's plan for the church. And so we're going to go back to the beginning. We're going to go back to Genesis chapter 1. Marriage is a creation ordinance. God created man, male and female. He created them. He created them to fit together perfectly in every way, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, physically. Creation was not complete. It was not perfect until the woman was created. When Adam was created, God said, it is not good. It is not good that man should be alone. And when Eve was created, then he finally said, it's good. It's very good. So the, the woman is the crowning act of the creation of God. And as a couple, they're created in the image of God, having dominion and governing that reflects the character of God as ruler, being creative, as God is, of course, not in the same way. God creates things by calling things into existence that do not exist. But man and woman, humanity, is creative, forming and transforming and working with the creation to build and construct new things and to develop things. That's part of being the image of God. And then, of course, being part of the image of God is also included in the mandate to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth. And I've spoken about this in, in other sermons, that, that the way that God decided to do this is striking, and it, we should pay attention to it. Because when he made the animals and the birds and things, he just made huge numbers of them. And they filled the skies and the seas. They too were told to multiply. But he certainly didn't just make one pair of each. When it comes to the human beings, man and woman, he makes just one of each. Because it was ordained by God that every new human life would be produced through an act of holy, sacred, intimate love. That's how it was designed to be. That's how it's supposed to be. That intimate union of love is a, a holy cradle of a new life. A new life is produced. And that, that kind of reflects the Trinity. Of course, God is in his being three in one. And, and we can't be. We, we are one being and, and one person. He is one being in three persons. But in the family, there's kind of a picture of that interpersonal love that's within the Trinity. There's that unity and diversity between the father and the mother and the children. That kind of reflects in a faint way the very being of God. And that, that, that whole idea of love producing life, which grows up to love and to produce more life, that's a cascade, which cascades from generation to generation and eventually is meant to fill the entire earth with people that love God and love each other. That's how it was built to be. Now, we're talking about intimate union and, and love and childbearing, and you're thinking, well, I'm single or I have no children. Maybe I should just kind of tune out for a bit, but hold on to what I'm saying, because this has to do with you as well. It has to do with every single one of us. Hold on to this thought. We'll come back to it in a moment. What is the purpose of all of this? What is the purpose of love and intimacy and, and procreation? The purpose is to build the church. 
The purpose is to fill the earth with the children of God. Every birth is another eternity, another infinity. That's true in the, in the garden. That's true even after the fall, brothers and sisters. Every time a little baby is born, that's another eternal being, eternal. That child will either live forever or die forever. But every child that is born is an eternal being. And if something so great is happening, so marvelous, so important, so infinite, then that must happen in a holy and sacred place, and that is holy matrimony. The ordinary means for the birth of a new infinity, a new eternal life of loving and worshiping and praising God, the ordinary cradle for that new life is holy matrimony, the leaving and the cleaving, the sanctifying one another. And the Bible says this in so many words. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 15, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. See how it all connects there in Malachi 2.15? Why does God want the union of husband and wife in holiness, in faithfulness and not faithlessness? Because he seeks godly offspring. He seeks a holy seed. That's the way God designed things to be. But we have to remember something here. And so this is getting back to the, those who have no children, who are married, and those who are single. This process is temporary. This process is something which was never meant to go on forever. Marriage will come to an end. Having children will come to an end. That is ordained by God. The Lord Jesus tells us so much in Matthew chapter 22, verse 30, where he says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. He's not saying we're going to be spirit beings with no bodies. That's not the point of comparison. The point of comparison is that angels don't get married, and angels don't have children. And so in the new heavens and the new earth, marriage is gone, and childbearing is gone. These are temporary things for this age and this dispensation until the number of the elect is full and Christ returns. And everyone has a duty and a part to play, a role to play in that great work of God to bring about the full fullness of his church. Everyone, whether you're married or not, whether you have children or not, Think about our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you think he had some kind of a, a role in, or has some kind of a role in the gathering, defending, and preserving and coming into being of his perfect uh, church? He certainly does, but Christ never married. Christ never had children. Christ lived some 30 or more years on this earth without ever marrying a woman and ever being a father to children. But Christ was nevertheless fully and perfectly human. There's no deficiency in our Lord Jesus. As there is no deficiency in you if you're called to singleness right now, 
or if the Lord has, in his sovereign uh, good pleasure, ordained not to give you children, there's no deficiency in you. Because if there's deficiency in you, that means there's deficiency in Jesus, which is impossible. Jesus was working on the big picture. The big picture is Christ and the church, the bridegroom and the bride, at the eternal wedding feast of the Lamb. That's the big picture. Human marriage is the little picture. It reflects that, and God uses it to build building blocks to get to the big picture. And in that big picture, every one of us has a role. Every one of us has a calling in building a new world and a new human race. Nurturing covenant children, supporting families, ministering to the elderly, spiritual parenting of evangelizing new believers and discipling new children of God. There's so many ways in which every one of us, married or unmarried, with children or not, are called and obliged by the Lord to participate in this glorious work, which is the forming of the eternal perfect family of God. And so it's a, it's a good and holy desire to be married. That's good. God put it right in you. It's a good and holy desire to have children, but don't let it consume, don't let it consume you. Don't let it consume you. Wait on the Lord. If he decides to grant it, he will. But right now, where you are, with what he has given you, and the calling that he's given you, be who he has made you to be right now. Where you are, with what you have, and your calling that is your calling now, you are called to live your life in pure, holy love. That, that's something that every one of us is called to. Christ did it. Christ lived a life of being single, not marrying, never having children born to him on this earth. And if he gives you that task, you can certainly do that for his glory and in his power. But it doesn't disqualify you. It doesn't bench you. It doesn't put you on the sidelines. It means that you're involved differently, but you are involved in building a new humanity for a new world, building up the body of Christ. It's a holy calling. It's a holy task. The love of God is poured into our hearts. The love of God overflows from us. We pour it into the lives of our children, uh, physically and spiritually as we love them and care for them. And we pour this pure love into each other's lives and into the lives of those whom God brings into the body, into the family. And so that cascading, even after the fall, even though everything's broken, that cascading still happens. The more life, the more love. The more love, the more life. It doesn't happen in exactly the same way as originally in the garden, but it still happens. And it is pure. And it is beautiful, and it reflects the character of God. And in that holy cradle of love, which produces new life, whether it's with physical children or spiritual children, in that holy cradle, there is no room, there's no room for filth or uncleanness or for exploiting people for your pleasure or for deceiving people or for breaking promises and breaking trust or for using others for your own carnal pleasure. That is unthinkable. That kind of stuff is cursed by God, and as God's children, we detest it from the heart. And the feeling is mutual. As we as children of the kingdom of light detest those things from the heart, so those who are citizens of the kingdom of darkness in this fallen world, they detest 
love and life and holiness and purity. They hate it because their father hates it. The last thing the devil wants is a world full of God's holy children. And so the kingdom of darkness fights against this holy church-building program and opposes it at every turn. God says, fill the earth. And the devil says, no, 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 depopulate. And isn't that where he really focuses a lot of his time and energy and resources? Have you ever noticed that all of the vectors of attack from the kingdom of darkness, almost every one of them converges on attacking love and attacking life? It starts with abortion and divorce and sexual confusion. There are so many sexual identities which are by definition sterile. You ever notice that? Of all the different sexual identities you can express in today's world, almost every one of them cannot produce life. That's not... That's not a mistake. That's not random. That's because our enemy hates life and hates love. And so when there is uh, relationships between those who can produce new life, there's, the devil works on that as well by banalizing sex, making it something banal, something just superficial. The whole hookup culture, there's the reducing of sex to mere physical pleasure to be taken whenever and with whomever you feel like. Just like you want to eat something, you want to drink something, you want to have sexual pleasure, who cares? And that, of course, is also an attack on all the beauty that we spoke about earlier. And the world says, you are your desires. You are your feelings. And that's another way that the devil attacks the holy state of marriage and that whole beautiful cascading of love and life which the Lord has ordained in it and through it. And so we have these two contrasting and, and contradictory ways of looking at sexuality and sexual intimacy. And you've probably noticed that we can't fight it, can we? It's just there's so much filth out there. Where do we start? And it's not just out there, it drips into the church, and sometimes it gushes into the church and into our lives through our screens and, and through the entertainment where we, we often kind of just overlook the fact that the devil's putting in his advertisements and his little, his little you know, kingdom of darkness um, little sermons that come through in the movies and in the games that we play, all of them pushing the same filth. We can't fight it. We can't fight it by, by taking, that. If, if we go back to that glass analogy, taking the glass of our sexual purity and holiness, we, we can't fight the filth by picking out the dirt. You know that's not possible, right? If you have a, a glass which is filled with filth, you can, you can try to pick things out, and you can try to even strain it, but you, you're not going to make it clean unless you have a perfect filter. It's, it's very, very difficult to take out all the impurity. And so, so sexual impurity, the, the filth of the world, is not something you can deal with by deciding to think fewer impure thoughts or say fewer impure words and jokes and do fewer impure things less often. Look at impure things 
less regularly. That's, not, that's no way to fight it. It's no way to deal with it. There's only one way to deal with it, with all the filth that's in the world, and that is to know who you are. That's, that's why we need God's truth, brothers and sisters. We need to know that our sexual desires are not our identity. This is important. Children, you are growing up, and parents, your kids are growing up in a different world than you grew up in, and they're hearing different messages, and they have a very, very different understanding of the world than you had when you were their age. And what your kids are hearing on TikTok and on all the social media out there is that your sexual desires are who you are, that your body is just a thing that you inhabit. It is something plastic that can be changed and sculpted and molded to fit with who you feel you are. And for most of us that are above 30 years old, that's just insane. And yet that's the world and that's the cultural soup in which our young people are growing up. That's what they're hearing. That's, that's what they're hearing. They get two hours of preaching on the Lord's Day. Well, maybe less than that. They get two hours of worship on the Lord's Day. They're getting hours and hours and hours and hours of the kingdom of darkness preaching into their lives as they play their online games and look at their social media. That's not a good thing. That's not good for them. And so hear the word of God, young people especially. You don't have a body. You are a body. Not just any kind of body. You are a body formed by God. You are an embodied soul made in the image of God. That is who you are. That is what you are. You reflect in your physical body and in that soul which is part of your, your physical body. You reflect the character of God. You are a member of Christ. What you do with your body affects the Lord Jesus because you are a part of his body. And so you can't just go out and do whatever you feel like. You can't just go out and identify to be whatever you think you are. But as a Christian, you ought to know what you are in Christ. You are a created male or female, boy or girl, man or woman, filled with the Spirit of God, and filled with the infinite love of God, which produces eternal life. And the only way to get rid of all the filth which the world is trying to flood into our lives and hearts, the only way is to ask God to turn on the taps. Lord, open up the taps and pour your love into me. Pour your grace into me. Pour your holiness into me. Pour your spirit into me. And I've used this example before, and I think it works. If you've got a glass full of dirty water, the best way to clean it is just to get this massive jet of clean water and just fill it and fill it and fill it till all the dirt overflows and comes out, and what's left is just pure, clean water. That's what we need to be asking God to do when it comes to our sexual purity. It's got to be Him. He's got to change our hearts, change our desires, change our focus, change our understanding of who we are in him. And so this is what the scripture says, 2 Corinthians 3, 17, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And, and, and I, I hate reading these 
these, these data points that you read in, in, in the, the, the literature and the research, because they're horrifying, that a huge number of Christians, men and women, are too often enslaved to sexual sin, also to online pornography. But hear the gospel, brothers and sisters. Hear the gospel. And the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That's the gospel of the seventh commandment. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There is freedom in Christ, freedom in the Spirit of the Lord Jesus from guilt. It's gone. The weight and the guilt of my sin, I know it no more. It has been nailed to the cross. It has been washed away in the blood of Jesus. It doesn't exist. I'm clean. I'm holy. I'm righteous. I'm pure in Christ. And so there's freedom from guilt and there's also freedom from shame. You know, there may be things in your life that you've done and, and you blush just thinking about them now. There may be things that have been done to you which you feel weighed down by shame because somebody has exploited you sexually and hurt you. But when you come to the Lord Jesus and you put all of your trust in him, say, Lord, I'm a sinner, a broken sinner, a hurt sinner, and I just look to you for freedom, then God gives that freedom, freedom from guilt, freedom from shame. And he tells you who you are in him. You are pure, you're clean, you're innocent, you're righteous, you're holy. Freedom from guilt, freedom from shame, freedom from slavery. If you are addicted to any sin, and this afternoon we're talking about sexual sin, if you're addicted to sexual sin, you don't have to be if you're a believer. You know, if you're addicted to sexual sin, you're like a slave whose jail door, whose cell door has been opened up, free to leave anytime you want, and you just can't, you can't get used to the fact that you're free, so you just keep on doing the thing that a slave does. So a lot of believers do. We, we're so used to the patterns of sin in our life that we think we can't act any differently. God reminds us where the, the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Take hold of that. If there's any sin that's enslaving you, any sin, take hold of that truth. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Walk out of that cell door. Walk out of it. Walk out of it today because you can when you put all of your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. This freedom from slavery, this freedom from judgment. You know that when Christ returns, you can stand before him with a clean conscience because your sins have been dealt with, they're gone. And there's freedom to live right now in this life already. There's freedom to live in purity. There's freedom to ask the Lord to change my mind and change my heart and change my desires and change my feelings and conform me to be like Jesus. And that means in the area of sexual ethics and sexual purity, it means to love the way that he has ordained things to be. To love that cascade of, of love and life that we talked about. So, so what does the, the seventh commandment positively require us to do? Well, get married if God allows you to. Have children if God gives them. And then have more. Love your wife. The Bible says be intoxicated with her love. 
Are you intoxicated with your wife's love? That's what God tells you to do. Always, says the scripture, not just now and again, not just on Valentine's Day, always be intoxicated with her love. Give yourself up for her. Is that what you're doing, my brother? Are you giving yourself up for your wife? Are you dying for your wife? Like Jesus gave himself up for the church. Because these are the things that make for joy and holiness and beauty and love in holy matrimony. And love your husband. Submit to him as the, as the church submits to Christ. Love your family. Support Christian education. Promote love. Find the deepest fulfillment of your heart's desire in the marriage of Christ and the church. Promote life. Foster children. Adopt children if the Lord has not given you your own. Disciple spiritual children. There are all kinds of ways to participate in that cascade of, of love and life and love. Promote biblical and godly family values in every area of life and society and knowledge. There's so many ways, brothers and sisters, in which we can hold marriage in honor and the marriage bed undefiled. Sexuality and marriage are holy things. They are holy things. They are the cradle of the birth of a new humanity, an eternal humanity, a new and perfect family of God. And as we live by the eternal truths that we've been talking about this afternoon, as we live by them, we build the body of Christ. We build the family of God together with pure and holy love, every one of us in our own calling. You know, if unchastity is cursed by God, as we confess, as the scripture teaches, how much more is not pure and holy love blessed by God. There are great rewards. There's great joy in this life when we live pure and chaste and disciplined lives. There's great reward in this life and there's even more in the life to come. And so we're about to sing Psalm 128, from Zion comes our blessing. Our happiness progresses all our life through the generations until the day when Christ seats us at the wedding feast of the Lamb, and there's no more marriage, and there's no more being born of birth of children because the, the family of God is complete. We sit down at that wedding feast with the eternal family of God, and we know these truths in eternal perfection. Amen.